just so I don't forget. Um, how's it going? You guys are both in Seattle. Oh, is that right? <laughs> I'm in funny. Tacoma. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in Georgetown. Was, you're in Georgetown. I was joking to Andy that we should meet at CHOP and do a live <laughs> recording from there. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> Hi everyone, this is Andy with Time to Say Goodbye Pod. Um, today we wanted to have a kind of a special episode dedicated to a topic that is really important, but it's also very opaque and constantly changing. And that is the situation with the Muslim Uyghur people of Xinjiang province in northwest China. So today, Tammy and I interview a specialist on the region. His name is Darren Byler. He's a researcher at the University of Colorado. And next year, his book will be coming out. Um, I believe it's called Terror Capitalism, and it's based on 24 months of research over the last decade. You can also find his writings in Sup China, Made in China Journal, and LivingOtherwise.com. You can always support us by uh, giving us comments, subscribing, spreading the word about the show through our Substack, goodbye.substack.com, our Twitter handle at TTSGPod, and our Gmail, uh, our email account. Time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Okay, hope you enjoy the show. Time to say goodbye. Tammy, how are you doing? I'm good. Very excited to have Darren. Yeah. Darren, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Good. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> the first time anyone's that. ever said that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really is. I've 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 been listening to the show and I have lots of friends that are also listening to it and so oh. they're excited that I'm gonna be on the show. Wow, it's flattering. Oh. Yeah, tell them to spread the word. <laughs> um so we want we we invited Darren on because I think he is uh he's an expert on a topic that I think a lot of listeners, a lot of uh sort of non non professional academics are vaguely aware of that's in the news regarding Asia, and especially, um, I think it'll become a bigger issue regarding U.S.-Chinese political tensions over the next few years. Um, and that is, of course, uh, Xinjiang and the question of what's happening with uh, the group of people known as Uyghurs. Or how would you how would you pronounce that in Uyghur? Uyghur. Yeah, most people say Uyghur. In in Uyghur, you say Uyghur, which is harder to yeah, say. Yeah. It's like a back yeah. sound, like ba. <laughs> Um, so as, as an American, I'm going to say Uyghur, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is an issue that has come up in the news a lot, and it's almost always kind of an issue raised by center to conservative people. And mm-hmm. there's also, I think, a lot of people who consider themselves left, liberal, progressive, especially who don't know very much about Asia, are a little unsure how they're supposed to feel about it, right? They have this sort of visceral reaction to what they read, but they also realize that all the politicians and the, the main voices are people they don't agree with. So I want to um, get into that, kind of start there, talk about the history of it. You know, Darren and I are academics. We're in Sinology, Chinese studies, but, you know, hopefully we can make this as accessible as possible to listeners. Um, Tammy will stop us if yeah. we start talking about bibli- bibliographies and I'm conferences. I'm public discourse police you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't Tammy, do you have any thoughts really quickly about, like, you know, Tammy, you're not... A specialist on China, but you're very, very well informed about Asia. Um, you pay attention to the news, obviously. What um, any opening thoughts of your of your own about what's going on in Xinjiang or your your curiosity about the region? I'm really grateful that you brought Darren on and that we're doing this extra episode because I think it's it's a key topic. Obviously, just because we should care about people's rights and how the welfare of human beings around the world that's important. 
But also, um, you know, as you said, it, it plugs into so much of the discourse around American foreign policy, American exceptionalism. And I also think, as Darren's work has shown, that there are all these also tie-ins to the regulation of whatever we think Islam is or political Islam is and, you know, sort of global Islamophobia. Um, incidentally, I really love the music of the region um, and the culture of the region. So um, I'm, I'm a little bit of like a Xinjiang, like Uyghur music, folk music super fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that also, I just, I, I know that is a culturally rich and important region. So. Yeah. Darren, you maintain, uh, what is it, the art of living otherwise? Is that the name? Yeah, the, well, it's called The Art of Life in Chinese Central Asia, and then the, okay. the actual web address is livingotherwise.com. Okay, Yeah. <laughs> so I just mashed them together. <laughs> but you track a lot of the music and visual arts of the region. Yeah, I, I actually got my start in the region talking about arts or thinking about arts. Uh, my background is in photography, and so I was hanging out with a lot of ah, contemporary artists cool. that were starting this new ah. art space there, and I thought it was this vibrant space where they were doing, doing this kind of political commentary on what's happening. But over time, it kind of got overwhelmed, and so a lot of the by by the huh. politics of the situation. So over For sure. so so now I'm I'm less focused on that, at least on that website. Uh, but there's yeah. still a, a, a big archive of music related posts and and things like that. Uh, before we get into the details, you know, I do want to get into like the history, the people, some numbers, some dates. But I thought it might be useful to open with an article that came out in the New Republic last week. A couple academic friends sent it to me, um, and we'll put a link to it. Um, the headline is something like The Left's Deafening Silence on Uyghurs in China. Um, I'll just read one or two lines, but you can get the sense of the article from that headline right there. <clears throat> uh, While GOP luminaries like Senators Tom Cotton and Marco Rubio and even Mike Pompeo take the lead on pushing and crafting policies, specifically highlighting CCP monstrosities, prominent Democratic voices, especially those on the leftier end of the spectrum, remain conspicuously absent. The silence stems from a myriad of reasons, regional illiteracy or indifference, internal distractions, reticence towards finding common ground with Trump-era Republicans, basic prioritization of domestic policy platforms, etc. Parts of the conspiratorial far left also remain convinced that the crimes against humanity in Xinjiang are simply Western propaganda. So Darren, do you think it's true that the conversation right now is kind of asymmetrical or imbalanced between those in the United States or those around the world outside of China who want to talk about the treatment of Uyghurs by the Chinese state tend to be sort of Cold War hawks who try to demonize China. And the left is, left progressives are more or less mm -hmm. very passive in these conversations. Do you, think, do you think that's true? Yeah, I think the loudest voices and the voices that have been the, the most constant have been in those positions. People like Marco Rubio, uh, for instance, and, you know, people that come from a, I mean, he's, he's from a Cuban American background and in an anti-communist situation. So I think <laughs> latching on to, to this discourse was pretty natural for him. And also I think, you know, worked well with his base in Florida. <laughs> Others, I think people on the left have had, they've talked about it. It's not like they've ignored it fully. Like someone like mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders has mentioned it. You know, Elizabeth mm -hmm. Warren has mentioned it. Joe Biden has said some strong stuff because I think he wants to show that right. you know Hunter <laughs> Biden isn't you know pulling him into China right. stuff, whatever. Um, <laughs> but they haven't said it often. It's more like you know when it comes up or as yeah. sort of a, a talking point, not something that they actually want to lead or you know um, 
that they want to take a, a leadership position on. Someone like Ilhan Omar has been actually mm. very outspoken mm. about the Uyghur okay. issue, um, but she's attacked by so many people all the time, yeah. and I think it's just it's, she just doesn't have the bandwidth to sure. take this on full time. Sorry, but even beyond politicians, you know, just your sort of average lefty academic, lefty activist. Do you find that a lot? You know, when you talk to them, because you you know the region very well. When they find out what you study, what you what what you you know write about, do you find there's a sort of like perplexed look on their face, like they don't know exactly what position they want to take? Um, they don't want to, they don't want to side with Rubio and Ted Cruz and like demonize the Chinese state necessarily. I think a lot of them are just pretty low information in general. They just don't they don't even they might not even know about Rubio. Um, <laughs> uh, so typically, like if I actually explain the situation and talk about it you know, kind of using some of the leftist language that they might be familiar with, they're actually really uh-huh. interested in, in hearing about it. Uh, yeah. But often it's the first time they've actually engaged with it. It seems yeah. as though a lot of people are not, you know, reading even journal, like mainstream journalism that focuses on on China. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they're just a lot of low information folks. Okay, so you, you give the left not a pass, but like a soft pass. They're not necessarily... <laughs> I th- I think inter- deceiving themselves. <laughs> I think internationalist issues have just kind of fallen off um, yeah. the radar for a lot of leftists, and mostly they're yeah. focused on domestic issues, and for for some yeah. you know pretty valid reasons. Um, I do think that you know where we're gonna see is Xinjiang will come up probably in the Biden Trump election, but probably in the first in the foreseeable future as well. It, be, it has been a GOP talking point. We've seen leaked memos here and there where. You know, the Trump administration kind of builds their case against China, Peter Navarro, those types. And Xinjiang is always a talking point. So why don't we get into the region itself properly? And we can just start at the basics. I think a lot of even journalists, you know, newspapers, you, you aren't going to get history lessons in newspapers, right? So first off, what is Xinjiang? And is Xinjiang, is Xinjiang part of China? Uh-huh. Or historically, when, when did it become part of China? <laughs> well, it's kind of been off and on part of China for a long time. So Xinjiang is this region in northwest China today. It's huge space, about the same size as Alaska. Um, yeah. Already way back in the Han Dynasty, which is over uh, 2,000 years ago, there was a Chinese presence. Um, but then there's you know centuries where there uh, there was an absence of of people that were the ancestors of contemporary Han people in China. Um, and kind of throughout that history, in the Tang Dynasty, right, which is the seventh century. Um, all the way up until the Qing dynasty, which is the last dynasty in China. Um, there have been a presence of, of Han people, but they've been a, a minority. They've been yeah. mostly in administrative positions, military folks that were in kind of outposts. Uh, so it meant that Uyghurs or the ancestors of the Uyghurs lived pretty autonomously um, mm-hmm. right up until you know the 1950s and you know up into the present. So Xinjiang, the name means new frontier, um, and it right. arrived in the 19th century, um, and it was a yeah. way of describing this new space that China wanted to incorporate into the nation. Yeah, yeah. I remember once I was teaching. There's a famous history book about the incorporation of Xinjiang in, in the 18th century. I was teaching this in my class, and you know, some of my students are from China, and I, I ended the lesson by saying, you know, and Xinjiang today means new frontier. And you could see on the face of some of my Chinese students, like the realization, like, oh, because, you know, when they grew up, it's just like here in New Mexico or like New York. You don't actually think about the meaning 
of these of these place names, like, oh, it is a new frontier. <laughs> um, so I think it's become so naturalized or normalized for people in China today that it's just a Chinese state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's obviously a history there. Um, who are the Uyghur people, and what what is the date when they begin to take this name? That's I forget the date. I have it written down somewhere, but it's in the 1920s or so. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, historically, the Uyghurs are a group of people that came from what's now Mongolia in the 7th century and settled this area. Um, and it's only actually a subgroup of the people that are now known as Uyghurs. It's people that live near Turpan. That was a Uyghuria for a while in mm-hmm. some history books. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Uyghuria, like a... I love that. <laughs> like a, yeah. Um, but the, so, so the Uyghurs today are around 12 million people. They're Turkic-speaking, they're Muslims... Um, and they bring together a whole bunch of different ethnic, you know, origin stories, uh, because some of the folks that are now Uyghurs were, you know, their ancestors were Sogdians, which are people from Iran. Yeah. Others were yeah. Central Asians, like Uzbeks. Um, yeah. So there's there's actually, you know, a bunch of different strains that, that brought together the Uyghurs. The Uyghurs were named the Uyghurs officially in the 1920s or 30s, thereabouts. Um, it, as a way of sort of solidifying, you know, who are these people that live in this space? Um, and it was actually decided not in China, but uh, in Central Asia, where they were talking mm-hmm. about the different ethnic groups there as part of the Soviet sort of, um, the Soviet republics that were being built as part of the Soviet right. Union. But lots of Uyghurs didn't really think about themselves as Uyghurs necessarily, yeah. um, even pretty recently. They, so like, what would they call themselves? Like, if you ask, like, what are you, what would they say? They would talk about their locality where they're from. So, like, they're mm-hmm. if they're from Kashgar, they would say, "I'm a Kashgar person." They might also say they're a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And then, if you ask a little bit more closely, they would, say, "Yo, yeah, we're Uyghurs or something." But it's not something that was like a huge yeah. part of their identity. They definitely knew who Han people were or Chinese people were. Uh, so most right. people that I interviewed said, you know, growing up they didn't see any Han people, and so right. if someone came to their town, like all the kids would gather on the street and go and like look at that person because it was like an event. <laughs> Did they see themselves as kind of part of that Kazakh-Uzbek world or also autonomous from that as well? No, I think they saw those people as pretty similar to them. I mean, they're just from a different, they were just yeah. from a different county or a different town, right. that sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. But this is a huge area. So it's the same yeah. size as California, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, and Nevada combined. Wow. So you can yeah. imagine that there's some variation over a space that For sure. I was um, curious, Darren, if you could say a little bit about that, how this particular region sort of was handled by the USSR versus China. Because it seems like there was sort of claiming by both of those as like nation states like in this region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, prior to 1949, it wasn't really clear where the sphere, like which sphere of influence this area would fall under, if it would become uh-huh. part of the, the Soviet Union or if it would become part of China. Let's move forward to the last, I think the last 20, 30 years really are the crucial moments in the story, right? So you mentioned before, um, these are statistics I you know, cherry-picked from your, from your writing. As of 1950 or so, the majority of the region was 80% Uyghur and 5% quote-unquote Han Chinese, right? Which is a category that itself is, yeah. um, you know, mm-hmm. contested. But 5%, let's say, are just Chinese people, 80% are Uyghur people. Um, then there's an aggressive move by the Chinese state to get Han Chinese people to move out there, basically to colonize it. Uh, this is something that Chinese states have done for a long time. They did it. We might not think of these regions as outside of China, but like Sichuan, Hunan, Central China, Southwest China, today, uh, two or three hundred years ago, were very much like 
also colonization projects, right? So this is an ongoing thing in Chinese history. By the 1990s until or around today, let's say, the population demographics, you would say they're roughly 50-50. Is that fair? There's probably two more million Uyghurs than the Han folks. At least that's how it's, the state statistics talk about it. But they actually don't account for the, what they call the floating population often. So mm. there could be significantly higher numbers of Han than are reported. There's also a million and a half Kazakh people. Mm. and around a million Hui people, which are Chinese Muslims. Um, so, but I guess the point is, the fact that Xinjiang is about, you know, roughly 40% Chinese today, it's the most Chinese it's ever been, right? It's, it was always a minority, yeah. very mi much a minority in that region, even though it's a Chinese province. Yeah. Um, so what begins in the... So uh, I, think, I think this is a quote from one of your writings, your dissertation, um, or, your, or your manuscript. You said... From the 90s to the present, we have kind of this three-stage process. First was the process of opening up opening up the West, which is sort of the 1990s policies, which led to the people's war on terror, and then finally a process of re-education, which is probably what people are seeing today in the headlines, quote-unquote re-education camps in Xinjiang. Um, what What is happening in the 1990s that kind of precipitates yeah. or set in, sets into motion mm -hmm. this three-decade process? Mm -hmm. So prior to the 1990s, the Han people that had been sent to the region really lived in the north, right along the border with Kazakhstan. So they lived on these sort of colonies that were segregated and pretty distant from the Uyghur population, which is mostly in the south, on, like on the other side of a mountain range. Um, right. And so that meant that Uyghurs, until the 1990s, lived as the majority in their own spaces. They were at least 90%, many places, 99% of the population, hmm. which is why it was so rare for people to see a Han person. So that began to change in the 90s because in the 90s, China was opening up to the West. It was becoming a marketplace for hmm. the world, uh, manufacturer for the world. So they needed raw materials. They needed oil and natural gas. They needed cotton. Um, stuff that could be either grown or found in Xinjiang. And so in right. the 90s, we saw lots of railroad construction, lots of road construction, um, telephone lines, all the infrastructure you'd need to, to get access to those natural resources. And it brought yeah. with it a service sector as well that was also Han. Um, yeah. The vast majority of people that worked in the natural resource extraction business were Han people, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. people that had some technical training, uh, some of right. them were from Dongbei and places like that where they had like a, yeah. a, a past Northeast. yeah a past history with uh, <laughs> sort of resource extraction. So mm -hmm. so that meant that there's all these new people coming into the region and that Uyghurs are feeling as though they're being left behind. Um, mm -hmm. It began a process of what I describe as dispossession. And at this point in the 1990s, they don't yet have the Chinese state doesn't yet have these plans to quote unquote open up beyond the Chinese border, investing into you know what we know today as Belt and Road Initiative or One Belt, One Road, um, which is, I think, the context of the present. Yeah, not really. They were actually pretty concerned about the Central Asian republics because they were becoming independent and they didn't want mm -hmm. the Uyghurs to start thinking about independence themselves. And so right. they all, they, by 1997, they cut off the border for Uyghur travel um, yeah. and, and were really, yeah, wanting to contain the Uyghurs right. inside the, the Uyghur space. Belt. So if they want all this oil and natural gas, who's, why do they need all this oil and natural gas? Just for Chinese companies like in Shanghai and yeah, yeah. Beijing? And, yeah, yeah, so it's called a, a West-East uh, pipeline um, that's bringing the oil and natural gas back to places like Shenzhen, um, where it can be used mm -hmm. in manufacturing. 
um, uh, and, and just for power in general in the country. Right. Um, so this is all connected because like Shenzhen very famously is like the workshop of the world that uses Hong Kong capital to team up with cheap Chinese labor and I guess they're using the natural resources from Xinjiang. So this is all connected, all these stories that people have probably heard about Chinese liberalization, but are all kind of separate. Yeah. Um, so in the in the 2000s, they really began to turn to cotton manufacturing um, or production. And today, mm -hmm. today, around 84 percent of Chinese cotton comes from this region, wow. um, uh, which means that it's really an important source of raw materials for textile and garment manufacturing. And, you know, lots of that stuff is made in China for the world. So, so, if, so if our clothes say made in China, is there a high likelihood it's coming from Xinjiang? There's a very high likelihood that it's at least sourced there. It might not be, you know, uh, the, 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 grown there. It, it's grown there, but it might not oh, be. Oh, it's probably grown there, it, I see. But it's yeah. not being manufactured there necessarily. There. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. And the other one I noticed on your website was tomatoes, tomato paste. Yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. that was even more recent. Since maybe 2010, they started growing tomatoes at an industrial scale. Um, mm -hmm. and so, so today, around 25% of, of the world's tomatoes comes from Xinjiang. Uh, so yeah. you have a, uh, there's a high likelihood that <laughs> your ketchup has some. Xinjiang tomatoes in them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so before we continue with the narrative, I actually kind of think this might be a good place to highlight an argument you make that I thought was really compelling. This comes in your dissertation, but I'm sure it's also in your manuscript, uh, where you talk about how we shouldn't think about what's going on in China and Xinjiang as just another you know, flare-up of ethnic differences, of sort of like old, um, deep-seated cultural differences between Han culture versus Muslim culture or Uyghur culture, right? So you, just to quote you from your writing, you say, the concept, the idea of ethnic genocide simply allows me to argue in a culturalist mode that one or more groups of people are bad or evil and dominating another group. It does not allow me to explain why. Um, and then you go on to explain that you, for, your, for your, the concept you want to talk about in your academic writing is this notion of terror capitalism, which we can get into. But the point is that we have to look for what you call, quote, the driver behind what is happening. It is not simply a natural outcome of political history or cultural difference. And I mean, do you think this is something that, I mean, you, obviously, you want, I kind of want you to expand on this, but also do you think this is something that, let's say, not to like, you know, make fun of Tammy's industry, but like journalists would be guilty of, right? Kind of <laughs> over, over. Oversimplifying. First, like, you dunk why. on our lack of historical <laughs> knowledge. Now this. <laughs> I mean, Darren, do you, do you find this explanation kind of being kind of flagrantly used by a lot of writing about the region? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion of ethnic conflict there that's been there for decades, and then more recently, genocide, um, and you know, those things are not untrue. It's just that they're in uh, they're incomplete descriptions of what's happening from my view, um, because they, there's there's reasons why people do what they do. It's not just that they're bad people or, or good people. Um, it's because they have economic interests at stake, um, because there's incentives that are given to them by state structures, by institutions that support them in doing what they do. Um, and so what we saw in the, in the Xinjiang region is that, in the Uyghur region, is that over time, uh, the good job started going to these Han settlers, and Uyghurs felt themselves being pushed to the side. They were, they were marginalized in their own cities. The institutions began to take on the shape or, of the, the Han presence. 
so you know the bank tellers, the people working at the that decided who got loans were people that you know were there to support the Han settlers rather than the Uyghurs. Um, mm -hmm. The basic staples became more expensive, but Uyghurs were still kind of you know doing subsistence farming, and so they they became poorer uh, because poverty is relational. It's not. Um, right, right. It's not absolute. Yeah. Yeah. So, so all of those things. I mean, it's a kind of you might think of it as like gentrification. Um, <laughs> rich people show up in your neighborhood uh, with more power. Gentrification of Xinjiang. <laughs> it's it's a similar like colonialism. Yeah. It's a similar <laughs> dynamic. Um, and yeah. so all of those things are not really taken into account if you just talk about ethnic difference. Uh, mm -hmm. it, there right, is no right. history to it. In that sense, yeah. it's it's just they're different and so they don't like each other <laughs> yeah. when in fact yeah. it's like there's there's reasons why people want to yeah. want to go to a space like this um yeah. and there's incentives that are put in place the racialization is part of it um but it's yeah. only you know it's a yeah. it's a effect rather than a cause in a lot of ways yeah i think that kind of gets back to this question of um what is wrong with let's say conservative politicians pointing out human rights abuses in china it's it is usually framed as a good bad morality story and the, these politicians would never say the United States itself commits human rights violations, right? That's a very one-sided account. Um, so it's not that they're wrong, that bad things are happening in Xinjiang, but the one-sidedness is, I think, what makes a lot of us uncomfortable. What was your, I mean, I'm just kind of curious, personally, do you have a, a memory or um, a sort of realization moment when you kind of went from this culturalist, ethnic way of understanding violence and exploitation to a different explanation that would be rooted in something that's more structural. Eventually you talk about, you know, the war on terror and global capitalism, etc. I mean, do you have a memory of like, kind of realizing that this first thing is inadequate to explain what's going on? In the actual context of Xinjiang, when I was doing field work, I just heard this over and over and over again from, from Uyghurs that I was hanging out with um, about how the system seemed set up in opposition to them. Um, and then at the same time, I was interviewing Han folks migrants to the region and they were talking about kind of how easy it was to live in Xinjiang because it was the mm -hmm. first time in their life that they felt that the government really supported them like a bunch of the oh, migrants wow. had <laughs> a bunch of the migrants had lived in places like Shanghai or or mm -hmm. Beijing or maybe Shenzhen before as workers um, but they yeah. felt like they were always kind of on the run or they weren't like fully wanted like they just wanted their labor but then after they didn't want them to actually live there but in Xinjiang, they felt like the government was really welcoming them and like oh, helping God. them to establish right. their hukou, which is their household registration. Uh, They're getting their, okay, their okay. kids into good schools. Um, they said, you know, sometimes the pay isn't as good as we want, but the cost of living is yeah. so much lower here than in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. um, so we can save so much money and send it back right. to our family in wow. you know, Henan or wherever. Um, yeah. So, that so just to clarify, these are the families that would have been like, they're living in the country, their standard of living is falling behind the cities. So people have probably read about this, the so-called floating population that, you know, the family might stay in Hunan or Hunan because their government doesn't allow them to change registration, but the working adults in the family will move to Shanghai or, you know, Wuhan or, you know, Xiamen and kind of take up a sort of, not informal, but a sort of casual labor position where they don't, aren't allowed to kind of settle in and become a Shanghainese person. Right, they're always kind of seen as outsiders and kind of looked down upon because they're basically farmers working in the city, right, as, 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 as uh, blue-collar labor. But you're saying these same people who were unable to kind of be allowed to settle down in Shanghai were now being encouraged and kind of greeted and you know, given all these material incentives 
to settle into Xinjiang. Is mm -hmm. that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I heard from them. Um, a lot of them lived still kind of segregated from the Uyghur population, and so they thought, like, you know, they didn't see them in their daily life, and they thought, you know, this is perfectly safe to live here. Um, they thought that, it, like, the impression that a lot of people have in China is that Xinjiang is really dangerous, or at least that's right. what people <laughs> used to think. Um, but they say, like, when you actually arrive, you realize that it's not like that, that this is just like any other Chinese city. That's how they talked about Urumqi. Um, people that lived in actual Uyghur majority areas where they were the minority, they felt a little mm -hmm. bit more embattled, but they still felt like the state had their back, that the mm -hmm. police were there to support them. And like, if anything happened, they could, you know, they knew all the police officers, they could call them right away and they would show up, they would protect mm -hmm. them. It's a state supported migration and settlement. It's fully... Yeah, so in the um, Uyghur majority areas, they give them incentives, like they give right. them land, they give them housing, they provide them with jobs. So do you think the Israel-Palestine analogy makes sense? People have do deploy that in this context to think about the state-supported settlement. I think the security um, systems are pretty similar. There's actually direct, you know, conversations between Israelis right, yeah. and, and Chinese police. Wow. Uh, but... I don't know if the incentives are quite the same um, mm -hmm. because, you know, Jewish folks that are moving to Israel and you know going to the West Bank as settlers, I think they see that as like their rightful homeland, right. um, their ancestral uh, yeah. homeland, where I don't know, I don't know if the Han people see it quite that way. Mm -hmm. Most Han people that I interviewed would say that, you know, if they're from Henan, they're still a Henan person. We're just living right. in Xinjiang now. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. to, to kind of quickly take us then from the 90s to the present, yeah. it seems like they're a big um, turning point in the two, was the 2000s and 2010s where um, this element of the war on terror uh, comes into play, which we can talk about in a moment. And would you also say that in the 1990s there wasn't quite the degree of racialization that there is today? Uh, and we talked, and you, you know, briefly mentioned this: this idea that the Uyghur people and the Han Chinese people are like incompatible races or cultures, right? Which is sort of a soft way of making almost biological sort of absolute claims. Would you say that in the 2000s we have this rise of a discourse that the Uyghurs are terrorists and that they are sort of racially or culturally uh, in some sort of deep-seated way different than us, than mm -hmm. us Chinese people? Yeah, so prior to the, the 2000s, there was a lot more sort of um, communal exchange between Uyghurs and Han, especially in the Uyghur majority areas. A lot of Han people that lived there that call themselves Lao Xinjiang, old Xinjiang people, mm -hmm. um, they saw Xinjiang food as their food, Uyghur food as their food. Many of them learned Uyghur language. They had Uyghur friends. They went to school with Uyghurs. The power dynamic was quite a bit different. Uh, like Uyghurs were actually uh, in an equal position in some cases um, mm -hmm. and were seen as equals. Um, they were all, you know, struggling against uh, the 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 they were struggling for the re revolution in all the, in the same ways, um, uh, fighting against um, feudalism or, or what have you. Um, <laughs> These are the slogans. The These are the Chinese slogans, right? <laughs> right. You're, you're translating. It yeah. For us. yeah. Um, so, so by the two thousands, that began to change, and that, like, already in the nineties, there were some protests over land being taken, and and, and some things related to religious um, restrictions. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But in the two thousands, they began to um, take on a new kind of valence, which was in after two thousand and one, they started to talk about Uyghur protests, um, not as separatist events. That's how they were often framed as like Uyghurs want to have their own state, but necessary that wasn't necessarily why they were protesting. Mm -hmm. But that's how the state framed it. After two thousand one, they started to talk about those things as terrorism. 
Um, mm. It was really the first time that terrorism entered China. Uh, prior to 2001, there were no terrorists, and then magically, yeah. several weeks later, there were terrorists. Mm. Um, so, what's the chronology in relation to 9/11? Uh, within several weeks. Uh, After 9/11. Yeah. Oh, wow. So. Okay. Before this, they just talked about Uyghurs as se- separatists. Hmm. Now they they actually went back and and rewrote the history of the 90s and started talking about those wow. things that they called separatism as terrorism. Um, wow. And in general, Uyghur protests started to be described in those ways. Um, yeah. It still took some time before that you know became the sort of mainstream way that Uyghurs were talked about. The key event was in 2009 when there was large scale violence in the city of Urumqi. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a lynching of several Uyghur migrant workers that had been sent there by the state. Um, so after that, that event, back in Urumqi, there was a protest on the street, and they turned very violent very quickly, and mm. hundreds of people were killed, thousands of people were disappeared. Um, according to the official statistics, it was mostly Han people that were killed by Uyghurs, but most of the Uyghurs that were disappeared were, were you know, Uyghur. In the weeks that followed that event, lots of people were disappeared, Hmm. There's videos that, that show this. After 2009, yeah. there was a lot more police presence in the region. And that's really mm-hmm. when we started moving towards the, the war on terror. Yeah. So th- I think this is worth perhaps delving further into because I think this is something that a lot of people don't know about. And I am curious to learn more about it. The Chinese state's adoption. Uh, is it explicitly adopting the United States rhetoric? of war on terror like it's not they just didn't come up with terrorism out of, out of thin air no it's, is that right it's pretty directly coming from the american the european discourse on terrorism mm-hmm. um a lot of the leading sort of criminologists or political or police theorists in china are trained in at western universities and mm-hmm. they're bringing the knowledge that they learned in those classrooms back to china they're translating yeah. the texts that are being used as sort of operating manuals uh, yeah. in policing in the West back to China. Um, yeah. And well, of course, and didn't are, sh- like she ahead. actually has said that he wanted to emulate the Patriot Act, basically, and post 9-11 programs in the U.S. We know that from, I think, leaked materials that the New York Times uncovered. So it seems like there was actually like literal <laughs> programmatic adoption. Yeah, I think that's pretty clear. We can also see like Xinhua has, put, has, has published stories talking about how um, the tech firms got involved around this uh, time too, well, right. a little later, 2014, um, how that they needed to emulate what Google and Amazon and others mm-hmm. were doing to assist mm-hmm. the, the US in the war on terror. Um, mm-hmm. and so there's lots of ways that this, is, this knowledge is being transferred. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the way, the way terrorists or terrorism gets coded in Chinese is it specifically targeting Muslim terrorists and seen and Uyghurs must be terrorists because they're Muslim is that yeah it's almost exclusively Muslims that are associated yeah. as as terrorists although sometimes Tibetans who self-immolate are also mm. considered terrorists oh, okay. Okay. Um, but you basically have to be an ethnic other in order to be a right. terrorist so right. so like someone who stabs kids at a school like a mass killing at a school or you know sets them sets a bus on fire if they're Han like it's just that that person is mentally ill or <laughs> yeah. had a grievance um, exactly, but if the if it's a Uyghur that does that, it's definitely terrorism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like here. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, that's interesting to me that you know the United States. You could talk about how the war on terror was very cynical and opportunistic, but it is true that for a lot of people, there was this real sense of fear that you know our own property, our own there was an attack in our own country. But in China, I mean, there wasn't. 
You know, they, I mean, they didn't feel directly impacted by the attacks on 9-11. So is it, do you feel like it was a purely opportunistic adoption of kind of like taking advantage of this political moment when yeah. terrorism was like 100%, you know, disapproval rating? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, initially, I think it was they wanted to work with the Bush administration to get the Bush administration in 2001 to recognize Uyghurs as terrorists, because uh, I think they mm. thought it would give them more latitude to, to act differently towards, okay. towards Uyghurs. Um, but it was fairly opportunistic and, and mostly just okay. about kind of state rhetoric. It w- didn't become oh. like kind of brought into the public consciousness of average Chinese pe- folks until like, you know, 2009 or maybe 2013 mm. and 14, which is when there was larger scale events outside of the Uyghur region that really, yeah. you know, took people by surprise. Yeah. So when you talk yeah, about it's... the Han Chinese that you interviewed having been fearful of Xinjiang, is that based on then those portrayals of what was going on in the region? Yeah, especially since 2000, post-2009, Just, right. um, people yeah. really got the impression that Uyghurs were dangerous. Mm-hmm. They had always thought that Uyghurs were dangerous, I mean, for several decades probably. Um, and that's really because Uyghurs have been pushed into the gray economy for a long time. So uh-huh. most Uyghurs that... Yeah that people would encounter outside of Xinjiang were either involved in food business, you know, making kebabs mm. and things like that, or they were working in the, in the marketplace, um, potentially selling drugs or as right. pickpockets, okay. like that the main stereotype of Uyghur young men is that they're pickpockets. Um, mm. And so that sense of criminality is, has right. been associated with, with Uyghur men for a long time. So then from 2009, you say, you would say 2009 is sort of the beginning of like this little, the latest phase that kind of culminates with these re- re-education camps. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that's right. It, it, there was between 2009 and um, 2014, there was sort of a period of uh, hard strike campaigns where sort of people that were seen as leaders in opposition or resistance to the state, religious leaders and others were, were taken. Um, but it was also kind of an opening up because after... 3G networks arrived in 2011, and so for the first time, Uyghurs really got online, and they were using you know Chinese-made smartphones that they could buy really cheaply to get onto WeChat, which is a social media app that arrived also at that time, and using Uyghur language to communicate with each other, which sort of hacked the censorship system because they just didn't have mm. the ca- capacity to control it, and so Uyghurs mm. uh, could talk about religion, they could talk about politics, they could talk about the Arab Spring. All of these things um, fairly freely and so during that period of time there was sort of a flourishing of cultural production which is what I was studying Mm. as a researcher Mm. Um, but there was also more discussion of religious practice of like piety practice that was coming from places like Turkey or global piety movements Um, and so Muslim Uyghurs became more devout in their Muslim pra- in, in their Islamic practice during that period okay. of time, and that was also really alarming to the state because they saw this as yeah. an extremification of the population. This one uh, Han official I interviewed said that uh, he, he thinks it's the Talibanization of the Uyghurs that they're becoming like the Taliban, mm. um, and and they they began to conflate sort of the violence that they were seeing with that religious expression, and and there mm. was more violence. So in two thousand thirteen. There was a family of Uyghurs that drove a SUV into a crowd of tourists in Tiananmen Square. Um, right. And, right, right, right. And then in April of, of 2014, there was an attack, eight, eight Uyghurs attacked uh, Han civilians at a train station in Kunming, which is another city in, mm-hmm. in China outside of the Uyghur yeah. region. 
killed over 30 people. That was actually described as China's 9-11. Um, mm. And that's oh, wow. really right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> that's really what precipitated the people's war on terror, um, right. and like the camp system and everything else. Okay. And is that currently the language? Do they still say that people's war on terror? I think they might have dropped that out a little bit. Um, but in 2014, like that's what they declared. They said this is going to be a people's mm-hmm. war on terror. It's like a whole mm-hmm. of government approach. Everyone should get involved. If you see something, say something. All of those kinds yeah. of rhetoric. <laughs> right. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and but over time by 2016 and 17 it was more about re-education so they yeah. talked about de-extremification and re-education so it moved from kind okay. of the war rhetoric to right. in the west we call cve which is countering violent extremism um, okay. which is more about de-radicalization so it's yeah. like getting it yeah, yeah. preventative policing getting at the roots of the problem <laughs> right right uh, so would you, would you say, if this, is this too simplistic, that in your mind, a lot of this violence is, the, is produced by a lot of the material inequalities or the state policies out there that are you know, dispossessing them of their land and their property and you know, creating these unequal social structures. But the state perceives this as the result of ethnic difference and religious extremism. And so their solution to get rid of the violence is not to like redistribute the land and capital in the Xinjiang region, it is just simply suppress the symptoms of it, which in their minds is religious extre- extremism. Is that is that a fair or overly simplistic way to, to, to frame your th- hypothesis? And that's definitely how the state presents it. I don't know, yeah. like, I, it's hard for me to say what the, what state officials actually believe or think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of them that, that do recognize that it's the inequalities that are producing this, but they are you know, not willing to admit that openly, um, yeah. and not willing to address it. Um, yeah, uh, but that, that's kind of your, your sort of working hypothesis that this, that a lot of this is driven by material inequalities, not necessarily they're brainwashed or, you know, whatever, right? Yeah, absolutely. Also, like most people are not engaged in violent resistance to the state. They just right. want mm-hmm. like kind of basic forms of justice. They want yeah. their basic needs to be met. They want their children to have a better future. They want security for their family. Mm-hmm. They also want to be able to speak their own language and to practice their own faith. Um, yeah. But many, most Uyghurs I interviewed, and I've interviewed hundreds of them, are yeah. are mostly interested in in those things, not like having yeah. their own state or not like you know fighting for global jihad or what have mm-hmm. you. Right. Well, and it seems like the the few Chinese bureaucrats who have been placed there who recognized or wanted to revert to an older view, which is that you could quell some of these conflicts through economic development were then punished because now that doesn't comport with the philosophy of the Chinese state towards them. Yes, I think that's that's part of the issue. I mean, that a lot of the economic development, which they thought I think would, you know, all boats eventually would rise. That's mm-hmm, the right. sort of mm-hmm. rhetoric that's there. Yeah. Some will get rich first, but then others will get rich right. later. That sort that, of thing. Deng famously, Deng Xiaoping famously <laughs> says this. Uh, but they Reagan. actually didn't, <laughs> and Reagan too. They didn't actually like put protections in place. So like the private yeah. industry that was set up around natural resource extraction or around cotton manufacture or, or, or growing cotton uh, in you know industrial farming mm-hmm. they didn't like you know make sure that there was equal treatment for the Uyghurs right. so actually in the advertisements for these jobs it would say you know they would list the ethnicity that's desired and it would almost always mm-hmm. be Han 
Um, so it was mm. basically saying, you know, Uyghurs need not apply for this job. Mm. Mostly what I, yeah, when I talked to Han people about why they wouldn't hire Uyghurs, they would say it's just too much mafan, which means like it's just yeah. too much trouble. Yeah. Um, that because they right. don't speak the same language, um, they don't have the same kind of relationships. They also thought that like Uyghurs are lazy. That's yeah, often that's the what stereotype. I would think. Not compliant and lazy, and yeah. So most of the jobs actually go to people that you're related to back in your mm -hmm. hometown. Right. Um, right. So there's like a whole group of people from Hunan that will come and build this road right. or whatever. Mm -hmm. So do you think if Uyghurs were given the same equal economic opportunities to participate in economic development, that most people you talk to would have been cool with that? I mean. They would have been okay with it. I don't know if cool is what they would say. <laughs> um, but, like, yeah, they they mostly felt like, a lot of Uyghurs felt like they could make it in the Chinese system if they were yeah. kind of given latitude to do it. Right. A lot of people felt yeah. like, you know, the main reason why we aren't doing as well is because we're not as well educated as other people. Mm -hmm. And if we had, like, education resources and mm -hmm. and, and things like that, we could, we could compete, um, you know, all things being equal. But then the, they found out pretty quickly that, even if they did have a PhD, they would still be given like a job right. that an undergrad right. would get. That's yeah. right. Right. I think most listeners are probably aware of the kind of news stories of the last couple of years with about these re-education camps. Um, I've also heard that these camps might be dwindling in number. Is that is that what you've heard as well? What what are, where are we today in 2020 or you know before the pandemic? Let's say or what is what is the latest strategy for? Um, managing quote unquote the population out there by the chinese state mm -hmm. so the ma the the camps were really built at a mass scale in 2017 um and that's when hundreds of thousands of people were taken to them um we don't have precise figures as to exactly how many people but it is definitely in the hundreds of thousands um i i my sense my best guess is that it's close to 10 percent of the Uyghur population which is you know wow. over a million um, but that's a guess. So initially people were held in these camps and then over time, like many were held for at least a year. Um, they were moved into, in some cases, factory spaces that mm -hmm. are associated with the camps. Sometimes they're, you know, inside the camp enclosure. Sometimes they're several kilometers away. Um, the Chinese state says they want to move 1.3 million, uh, textile manufacturing jobs to Xinjiang. Um, and really they're targeting the Uyghur population with those jobs. Right. Um, so that's where a lot of people are at, is, is in those factory spaces. Um, the factories are still kind of part of the re-education system, so they're, they're still really tightly controlled. They're held in dormitories. There's still classes that they have at night. They're still learning yeah. Chinese. They're being surveilled. They're only allowed to visit their relatives occasionally, sometimes not at all, those yeah. sorts of things. Um, and and it's, they're usually you know, have a labor contract that they've signed. Uh -huh. Usually, I mean, it's, it's done coercively. They have no choice but to sign it. Right. Um, so they are being paid. It's not slave labor in that sense. Um, but well, what if they said no? I mean, what, what would happen? <laughs> then they would go back to the camp or they would be right. sent to prison. Um, okay. So it's coercive. So it's, it's, yeah, it's definitely unfree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's unfree for sure. Yeah. Um, so that's okay. where a lot of people are at. Then there's others that have been sent to prison. Probably we don't have good numbers, but... A, a, a good proportion, maybe 10, yeah. 20, 30 percent of the population that was in the camps have been sent to prison. And then older folks or people that are not in good health have been allowed to go back to their villages or neighborhoods yeah. and, and are there kind of under supervision. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So that's kind of the state of things. There's still good numbers of people that are in the camps because uh, we can uh -huh. see that some camps are still in operation, even though the state says that they've all been closed. Mm -hmm. um, oh, okay. 
but that's yeah. like, could it be like they they they, there's, they just call it a different name and that's their excuse for saying they're closed you know, like factories. <laughs> well sometimes yeah in some cases they've been turned into formal prisons so they would say that oh, this okay. has, this was never a camp this was never a vocational training right. center this this was always a prison um yeah yeah that's that's one of the answers that they give i was curious the, about you because i had read the reporting on it seems to suggest that there was a deliberate move from a re-education camp to prison and to the to criminalize them retroactively you know as a justification yeah. for these camps now that they're very unpopular and then the second piece of that I, I was curious if you wanted to say a little bit about the recent reporting on sterilization programs and you know the sex crimes against women as be, now becoming part of the strategy as well right so large numbers have been moved to prison they've been criminalized and they've been given like 10 15 year sentences right. Um, for things like, you know, having a relative that was in Turkey and saying that you wanted to exactly. visit them, right. um, which exactly. is somehow like indication that you want to commit terrorism. The state really, I think, was surprised at the moral cost of having camps or that they would mm -hmm. be recognized as camps. I think they thought that this wouldn't become <laughs> oh, really? this okay. global story. Right. Um, and so I think they really want to say that the camps are not there anymore. So they're reacting to pressure, you feel like? Yeah, I think they, they, they definitely yeah. are. I mean, they've, they've opened up these sort of, there was a period of time where they opened up these kind of staged camps for visitors, for diplomats right. and mm -hmm. journalists and stuff. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you could see pretty clearly that they wanted to control the global narrative around this. The, I think there's people that, you know, there's a lot of pressure being placed on the lower levels to, to, to implement the system initially and now to like make sure that there's no trouble um, yeah. because it all reflects you know, poorly on, right. the, on the people higher up in the, in the hierarchy. Right. Um, right. So, so that's how the system is is working at the kind of grassroots level. It it means that, like, there was sort of a a tyranny of numbers that people needed us to meet right. a certain quota to put in the camp to show that they were like you know earnestly following through on the reeducation program, mm -hmm. um, and now it means that they have to like make sure there's no stories about any of the people that they sent wow. away. Okay. And I want to um, make sure you address the sterilization aspect because yeah. I think yeah. Outside of the camp system, people are also really tightly controlled. Um, the, in many cases, they've had monitors sent into their home to on mm -hmm. periodic basis to make sure that they're not acting in a separatist way or that they're they're compliant. Um, especially the people that have a relative that's been sent to the camp. Um, on Mondays, typically they're sent they're they're asked to go to a flag raising ceremony, um, and to talk about uh, at certain points to talk about you know their past crimes or their crimes of their relatives to denounce them. Um, they sing red songs, they learn political thought. Um, and at some of these, they're also doing gynecological exams, uh, which seems, wow. seems like so like out of whack and, and, and crazy. Um, and so lots of women have um, been checked in this way um, to make sure that they aren't having, that they're not pregnant. Um, the, the health status of or the, 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 the family planning status of, of everyone has been monitored really closely. This has something to do with the, the biometric data that's been collected too. So everyone has been asked to, to give their data, um, which is a, like a face scan or iris scan, voice signature, DNA, blood, and fingerprints. Um, and as part of that, they've also begun to track people's um, family planning history to make sure that you didn't have extra children a lot of people were sent to the camp because they had more than they were allotted or, you know, they might have had multiple marriages and through that they've had, you know, more kids than they should have, those right. sorts of things. Um, and so now there's a, this, this really tight control on, 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 on children, on having children. 
Um, and as part of those gynecological exams, they've started inserting IUDs um, and also sterilizing people. What we know is based on government statistics of family planning, that they've published these statistics to show how successful they've been in, in, in introducing family planning uh, at this like systemic wow. level uh, yeah. with Uyghurs. And because of the, the power differential and the way that this is being used to target this one group, it, it begins to resemble not just the family planning that's happened everywhere in China, but something more like a eugenics program because it's right. the, the, the ratio of, of Uyghurs that are being sterilized to Han people that are being sterilized is, is drastically different. So we yeah. can see a, yeah. a dramatic spike um, yeah. of Uyghurs being sterilized. Something more like a Bosnian yeah, or like or like an American situation in the nineteen seventies where yeah. you know, seventy thousand Native American women were sterilized. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and also black without and Latinx choice. and white women who wanted to get welfare and other sorts of public benefits. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so that story came out what two weeks ago or one week ago, I think, and um I've seen I've seen debates about whether or not this is um an extension of the existing one child policy. Or if it's right. like a specifically Uyghur policy. I mean, is there just not enough information as yet to kind of understand the context of all these stories? Yeah, well, I mean, Uyghurs have been allowed to have three children if they're in rural areas and two children if they're in urban areas um, mm -hmm. for you know as long as there has been family planning. Um, but that started to change. They started to they said they want to equalize yeah. the system. So right. now mm. all Uyghurs are only allowed to have two children. Um, and Han people are now allowed to have two children as well, mm -hmm. right. uh, everywhere in the country. So yeah. they're saying it's now we need to make it equal. The last, the most recent development that I've seen that really shocked me was there's a recent report um, from the Australian Policy, something Policy Institute mm -hmm. that kind of documents the recent practice of a lot of Uyghur workers being sent from away from the Xinjiang re-education camps to factories in the rest of China that would produce consumer goods for the rest of the world. And these are the kind of factories that we're all kind of familiar with. They make electronics, they make clothing. Uh, from the report, I just kind of cherry-picked a few names. They make, you know, items for like Abercrombie & Fitch, Adidas, Amazon, Apple, Samsung, Uniqlo. Uh, so these are just like the factories we assume mm -hmm. that make all of our stuff anyway. Um, and a lot of these are also international companies. The, the example actually was from a Korean company that is based in China. And I think this is interesting because now it kind of really makes creates a very clear, direct mm -hmm. material connection between the rest of the world and their potential complicity with the treatment of Uyghurs in China. Right? It's not just this thing that's happening in this far, far away, you know, this land that's very far away and have nothing, has nothing to do with me. Now the clothes that I buy at my stores or the electronics I buy at, you know, online c could be complicit with this system. Um, what do we know about what's going on with that? And, you know, is this, is this new or is this kind of an extension of the re-education policies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely connected to the re-education policies. So a lot of the factory work is happening in Xinjiang, um, but there's also significant numbers of people, uh, the, the numbers I've seen, the latest numbers are like 250,000 or so um, people being sent to other provinces to work. Um, typically, those people are what they call surplus laborers, which means mm -hmm. that they were farmers in their villages um, yeah. and determined to not to be underemployed. 
And so they were selected by local officials to be sent on these programs. And again, these are the sorts of things that you can't say no to. So mm -hmm. if you say no, you would be sent to the camp. There, there's right. there, that, that sense of threat is always there. Um, and so if you're selected to, to work in one of these factories, you have to say yes. Um, the factories themselves uh, in that Aspie report that you cited show, and there's also other reporting from like the Wall Street, or sorry, the Washington Post and others, um, where they actually visited these factories. I, I see all of this, this factory work as, a, as an effort to kind of proletarianize the, the weaker mm -hmm. population, to like move them off of farms, out of sort of yeah. that sort of labor situation into the wage labor economy, yeah. um, and to make them productive in the economy. But at the same time, they're, they're kind of not, they're not freely agreeing to these contracts. So it means sure. that they have no space to negotiate them um, and that they're being pushed into kind of a, a servile or unfree class yeah. of people, yeah. kind yeah. of permanent underclass, mm -hmm. um, which means that this, it's not slave labor, but it's, it's, not, sure. it's not free labor either. Yeah. Right. Um, There's a lot of historical resonances with proletarianization as it occurred in places we would be more familiar with, like in England and Western Europe and the United States. Mm -hmm. You talked about dispossession earlier, right? This is a classic trope in history. First you dispossess the farmers, right. and then under either physical coercion or just economic coercion, right? Just economic duress. They have no choice but to work in the factories, and this is, you know, what like Oliver Twist is about, or right. Lowell, Massachusetts, you know, textile farms. So it's not, right. or textile factories. It's not, um, it's not exotic. <laughs> To, right. to yeah. for us right like this is right. something that's our societies were also built upon as well that's something right i think that comes out really clearly in your work right you know we're going on for a while here but i, I do want to spend some time talking about how should we feel about all this and and how do you how do you how do you recommend that we should we all just feel like really shitty about this and kind of feel guilty for being complicit in the system should we just stop buying from all i mean should we you know do the consumer boycott thing or do do we get on board with the sort of Republican-led human rights bills that are trying to, like, you know, sanction China or censure China for their treatment of the Xinjiang workers, or, um, you know, how, how, how should, like, the global citizen feel about all this? Well, I don't think we have to endorse the right-wing approach to this, necessarily, um, but I do think we should take a stand. We should take positions on this. I think, you know, saying nothing is also complicity in a yes. certain way. Um, so one of the issues at stake here is that the like, Uyghurs are a small diaspora. There's only around 10,000 of them in the U.S. Um, most of them are concentrated around D.C. Most of them have found jobs associated with sort of the kind of government in exile there, or, or that's that's one of the reasons why they're they're gathered in D.C. Um, and they've gotten some funding from U.S. government sources. So one of the things that needs to happen is we need to have autonomous sources of funding for Uyghur institution building, uh, which means like, you know, the whole range, like we need, Uyghurs need institutions that would help to protect their cultural traditions, that would empower young Uyghurs um, to, you know, become more professionalized and advocate and, and, and advocating for themselves. There's just so many roadblocks to it because so so far, the, the, the U.S. government has sort of dominated the funding situation. And also, the, the uh, Chinese state is still controlling the Uyghur population to a certain degree here. So those that haven't kind of 
you know, sold out and gone with U.S. government funding and, and taken kind of political positions in that mm-hmm. apparatus are mostly silent because they're mm-hmm. afraid if they speak out, it'll affect their family back in China. And so, like, yeah. the leftists that are in the Uyghur community are, you know, really terrified to speak openly. And so mm-hmm. that means that they need allies that can help, mm-hmm. you know, help them to amplify their own voices, so to, to sort of raise their voices. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So... We need more solidarity and we need these kind of autonomous sources of funding for them. But it's hard yeah. to know exactly, you know, how you get started with that. Um, Are there examples of, um, let's say, Han Chinese PRC citizens who have kind of put their necks out to help the Xinjiang Uyghurs? And also, are, are there, I know academics have made these abstract comparisons between Xinjiang and Taiwan and Hong Kong as a sort of quote-unquote problem areas that all face a similar struggle in terms of their autonomy from Beijing. But are there actually like connections across Taiwanese, Hong Kong, and Uyghur people, um, or is that mostly just like a academic fantasy? <laughs> um, there are some connections. Unfortunately, they're mostly on the right if they are there. Oh, so okay. it's <laughs> like the you know the the Chinese overseas Christians are kind of allied mm. with the Uyghurs along like religious freedom issues, or like Falun Gong mm. are also interested in Uyghurs mm. for similar reasons, yeah. um, and like the you know right-wing folks from Taiwan um, yeah. are interested in Uyghurs too. And so there's some mm-hmm. alliances already in D.C., more like kind of in the lobbyist community. Right. Um, outside of that, there, there are some beginning um, institution building that's happening. Um, one of the most, the, the, the thing that I'm most excited about probably right now is a, a new website archive that's being built um, at University of British Columbia. Oh, yeah. um, that's, that's great. It's called the Xinjiang Documentation Project. Um, and so I think it's it's opening up a space for people that want to get involved to get involved in certain ways. Like one yeah. of the things that has been exciting for me is working with some PRC students to translate um, texts that they think are valuable into mm-hmm. Chinese so that there's this kind of repository yeah. of articles that they can send back to their parents uh, yeah. in China, potentially, yeah, or to, to people that are interested that, that right. wouldn't read the wouldn't read English um, to kind of just inform people a little bit better. Yeah. What is the attitude of their PRC students? Why do they feel the need to volunteer their time to do this? I think they they feel like they should do something. Um, but at the same time, yeah. there a lot of these translations are being done anonymously because they're worried about you know attaching sure. their name to it because it mm-hmm. could have really negative implications for them back in China. Yeah. Um, so it has to be done sort of on the down low as a yeah. kind of a collective effort. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I thought about like if I send I have relatives like in China and if I sent them for instance these translations, when am I getting my relatives in trouble? Because the yeah. WeChat sensors will see, yeah. right? So I, I guess that's another question I had. Like if you make these translations available, do you just give them the web link and they get on a VPN and they can read it? Is that the only real um, possibility for getting into China? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, these are all difficult <laughs> things to know how to do. I think I think probably the safer way of of discussing these things is over like a kitchen table. Um, right. So if you go back to China, you could have conversations in, in that context or, you know, in the diaspora, you can also have conversations with friends yeah. that are un- unsure about things. Yeah. Do you think the Chinese diaspora, since you meet in the United States, are open to all this? I mean, I guess if they're going to work with you, they probably are. But <laughs> <laughs> Typically, the students that I talk to, and these are mostly undergrads, are usually pretty interested in it uh, because it's mm. something they haven't really heard a lot about. Um, right. And when you kind of talk about it in a systematic way. Um, and they, in a way that kind of makes sense, they really kind of mm. see the different logics or forces that are at work. 
um, yeah. they can really identify with it, especially if you start to make these analogies to, you know, American colonialism or yeah. race relations in the U.S. Totally. Um, yeah. That makes sense to them. There's lots of things that the American left, quote unquote, would unequivocally be against were on terror, surveillance, capitalism, these things that have certain resonances in the domestic context. And if you kind of point out, well, if you're against that here, shouldn't you be against it over there? I think yeah. if you if you kind of that might be one rhetorical strategy to perhaps get people who are on the fence, right, to yeah. to kind of see to kind of clarify the situation for them. I think a lot of people don't understand that China is a it's pretty much a capitalist country in, a, right. in sure. almost every way. For sure. that, it's so like, frustrating. These are, <laughs> they like they they think because there's a communist party in charge that it's somehow a socialist state when it's it's really just not. Yeah. Um, I saw this I saw this thing that's getting passed around by this. Uh, do you know this guy named Ben Thompson? He writes about technology. <laughs> he's not he's not like into politics or anything, but he wrote this thing that people are passing around around about TikTok, and in the middle he's just like the Chinese state is creating this battle between liberalism and Marxism. And I was like, what the fuck? What? Like, people who are important <laughs> are going to be reading this. And this is getting passed around in, like, you know, Chinese Twitter, like, uh, fucking whatever. It's really bizarre. <laughs> I'm worried about it, too, because also with the closing off to reporting in China. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just, I mean, that, yeah, you know, with the situation of the Uyghurs in particular, that's that's a huge hit. Right. And I'd just like to say something really quickly in defense of the journalists. Like, Yay. A lot of <laughs> like there has Ooh. been there has been a lot of bad China journalism in the past for sure, but I think like the 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 most recent journalism that's coming out of China is actually quite good I agree. Uh, in a lot of ways. Like these are do people wanna, that speak. Wanna, these are people that name names. <laughs> I could sure. I mean, I think like a yeah. lot of the New York Times reporters are are, yes. are pretty right. solid. Um, like Austin Ramsey. Yeah, He's Austin. A yeah, yeah, Austin Chris Ramsey is, is a. Right, and Chris Buckley has a PhD in in China studies, yeah. like, trained Paul by a Marxist. Done a like, good job. Yeah. yeah, these people are on the left actually, and they're writing about stuff because they care about it and That's they think right. it's really important. Um, Don't tell their bosses they're on the left, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have to kind of hide that, but yeah. it's actually there. Yeah. I mean, if you have conversations with them, you'll 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 know that. That's right. Yeah. Um, For sure. So, so what I, are the, what are the source, what are the sources do you go to or recommend a you know, neophytes to, to understand the situation? Well, it depends kind of what they're looking for. So if they want something that has nothing to, like doesn't mention Adrian Zenz's name at all, there's not that much that's out there. Um, yeah. Just because he's- Adrian kind of, Zenz is a, a right-wing evangelical. He's like part of this organization called Anti-Communist League. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what's your, I mean, we might as well just ask, like, what's your take on his, his name appears in every report about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, and he's controversial for those reasons. Yeah. What is your take on when you see his name come up in like an AP story? So I mean, it's difficult to separate his sort of personal position from his his uh, actual academic work, and and you shouldn't probably fully do that. <laughs> um, but like, his background is a missionary. He was a missionary in Tibet. He wrote a book about the end times that's like has all this homophobic stuff in it. Oh wow. Um, he, but he also has a PhD from I think either Cambridge or Oxford, um, and he's really That's good at quantitative sign. analysis. Even worse, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's actually very good at quantitative analysis. So he's basically collected tons of government documents, and then he's he's like you know presented the numbers, um, and you know occasionally there's some like in some of his kind of analysis you might see some sort of right wing sort of talking points or some. Uh, 
some indication that of his like Christianity. Like he often like has like a Bible verse at the end of his article or something, wow. but, or some some quotation from the Bible. <laughs> but I've like I peer reviewed his articles. Lots of other people that are on the left have looked at his articles, and we haven't found reasons to disprove the main points of what he's saying. Like his his quantitative analysis is solid um, if you want to argue with him you're basically arguing with the Chinese government because that, those are the, the people that are giving him his data um, um, but there is some good pieces out there like if you want to know more about um, like Islamophobia and war on terror and how it relates to this um, David Brophy's stuff is really good nice. I've, ri- I've written a couple pieces on it there's this article in Chuang which is a leftist collective mm-hmm. based in China that has a, a really good piece on um, sort of the history of stuff that's happening there. Um, Made, in, Made in China Journal is the one that's published you and David's work before. Yeah, right? yeah. Oh, right. Made in China is actually on the left as well. The right. the, the founder is an activist uh, leftist from Italy, and they, like, <laughs> the gray gray zone has tried to damage them by saying that they like got sources oh, of funding from like a, a neoliberal corporation or something, which is probably true but yeah. i think my from my perspective as opposed to not a neoliberal corporation if right. if if people want to give you money you should take it um for sure um in a lot of contexts unless it comes with a lot of strings and, and in this case there isn't any strings yeah. like they can yeah. publish exactly what they want to publish totally darren i would recommend your own work in sub china news to people because i think um, it's really elegant and incorporates a lot of voices as good anthropology should um, and it's very accessible so I'm grateful to you for that column. Yeah. Oh, so, you, so your so your ongoing websites are SubChina. You have the column. You have Living Otherwise. <laughs> yeah. You're doing so, a lot of work. And I also publish stuff from this guy named Gene Boonin, who mm-hmm. is uh, a scholar activist based in Kazakhstan, who's working with kind of grassroots activists there, mostly Kazakh folks that have come across the border from China, um, and they're trying to record. Um, or document how many people have been taken. Um, so they have over 9,000 um, personal testimonies of different people that have been taken now uh, up on that site. Um, and occasionally some of the stories they hear are, are you know, really gripping. Um, and, and sometimes they do a, a bit of analysis of, of the, the sort of thing that they're seeing, you know, in terms of who's being sent to prison and, and, and those sorts of things. So I publish those things as well on the Living Otherwise site. Great. Um, so yeah, both of those would be good sources for people if they just kind of want an overview. Cool. Tammy, any questions? No, oh, that was great. I mean, we could be here a lot longer, I think, but we'll yeah. let Darren no, get was... on with his life. <laughs> yeah, someone who studies China ostensibly as my profession, I really don't know very much about this region. I'm, I'll confess that, so this was this was incredibly edifying to read your work and to talk to you. So thanks a lot for coming on, Darren. Oh, of course. I was really happy to be here. Sahar Didim Sultan Masan, Udidi Akyak. Sahar Kurgan Chivit, Kuzim Sultan Didim Sultan Masan, Udidi Akyak. Kuzlari Yalkunlu. Did you